Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Greetings, constant listeners. It's Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman. Today, in celebration of the 35th anniversary of Clive Barker's Hellraiser, not to mention David Bruckner's Hellraiser, which you could stream now on Hulu, hashtag not sponsored, um, not to mention the fact that it's also spooky season and we're all revisiting our favorite horror movies, we thought we'd unlock one of our older Patreon-exclusive episodes from the Dairy Private Library. And uh, this is a crate episode from September 2020 that finds losers Mackenzie Gerber, Dan Flieger, and Mel Castle heading up to the attic where they open the box to hang with some fearsome, flesh-eating Cenobites as they solve 1987's Hellraiser. Uh, it's a pretty great episode because they all love that movie. Spoiler alert. Um, but uh, as you know, as we do on the Losers Club, we have a, an analytical lens, and they certainly bring it to that movie, and uh, so I think you're going to like it. Uh, but if you enjoy this episode, you could get even more of them by joining our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash thebarons. You can find hours and hours of exclusive content we haven't unlocked, from commentaries of your favorite Stephen King films to our in-depth archival series that goes deep into King's uncollected works, to our Dark Tower spinoff series. They're coming back this month. Something on uh, Mr. Callahan, I believe. To our book episodes on new King books, like last month's Fairy Tale, last year's Billy Summers, and the list goes on. And by the way, yes, we do lock the new episodes in the Patreon for the new book episodes dedicated to King's new books. But here's the thing. We're on a chronological reread. We can't put them in the main feed. You, you're all on a path here. You're on the path of the beam on the main feed. Rest assured, when the time comes, we'll get to those books on the main feed here. But for those that want to jump ahead, like us, because look, we want to read the newest books also. So we keep them on the Patreon. But rest assured, they're going to be in the main feed once we get to there chronologically. But for now, if you want them, you got to go to the Barons. www.patreon.com slash the Barons. Don't worry. We'll be back with a book episode this month. Wolves of the Kala, our first of three Dark Tower books that we're going to be covering before Santa Claus comes to town. Or you start lighting the lights on the on the menorah, like I do. <laughs> anyway, uh, enjoy this episode. Enjoy the Cenobites, uh, especially Pinhead, Doug Bradley. What a guy. Ashley Lawrence, what a hero. Well, anyway, I've talked enough. I'll see you over long days and pleasant nights. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of oh, all in the name of oh, all in the name Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. And today, we're opening up another crate. And for those uninitiated, the crate houses episodes where the losers get to chat about horror films outside the realm of King. These episodes are determined by members of the Turtle that make requests on the Barons. And you know, today, I opened this giant crate 
And it was like one of those awful Christmas gags where you have to keep opening wrapping paper after wrapping paper and finally ended up with, in the palm of my hand, a beautiful golden puzzle box. That's right, at the request of Zoe Morrison, whose art we just posted on our socials via the Fuck, Mary Kill episode. I don't know if you two saw that. <laughs> we just posted her stuff, though. Uh, we were <laughs> She's requested that we cover Clive Barker's 1987 classic Hellraiser. But before I open the box, I'd like to go around and quickly share who will be joining us from the netherworld. And if you two could briefly tell us in your introduction, um, your first introduction to Clyde Barker's Hellraiser, and also if you were to be a Cenobite, what special trait might you have? Uh, Mel? Hi. Do we do nicknames? I'm going to do nicknames. (laughs) Let's keep it up, yeah. This is Mel chattering Cenobite Castle, and (laughs) my introduction to Hellraiser was that I knew about it for almost my entire life because my parents loved to joke with people that they watched Hellraiser when I was like a three-week-old infant on their lap, like, and that it and that it did something irreparable to my brain. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> that, <wow. laughs> um, you know, I was too young to comprehend what was going on on the screen, but they're they're both into horror and and and, mov- and genre movies, and so it it's just sort of been buried in me all this time. It wasn't until I was much older and able to comprehend the movie. I think I first saw it probably in college, and just rewatched it for this episode. And it was like a first time watch, just because I didn't I didn't remember much, but I've always associated it with just something formative for me in terms of being into horror because it's imprinted on my brain. Um, so it's, it's always just held a nice place in my family lore. Great, great. And then uh, who else do we have on the call today? Well, this is Dan Butterball Flieger, and I just opened a White Claw, so it's going to get I love I loved that punctuation. To <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to step on anyone else's record. So Sounded I just like a, a chain hooking itself. into you. <laughs> the drinking will be legendary um so my parents are also huge fans of this movie more so my father and i remember they rented it and i would walk through the living room sometimes when they would watch horror movies uh similar thing with the exorcist where they were watching a movie i heard noise so i ran in saw what was on the screen i was probably like f- five or six and then just ran out of the room um <laughs> and from then on when my dad would tuck me and my brothers in at night he would quote the movie and he would often say things like, your suffering will be legendary, even in hell, <laughs> um, which might actually be from the second movie. But he quotes it all the time. And whenever we had like a puzzle or a riddle, you know, toy, he would act like it was opening the hell dimension. So uh, this one's deeply ingrained in my childhood psyche and trauma. Oh, wow. Uh, well, uh, that's that's great. And then to round it off, you have me, <laughs> Mackenzie. Uh, Hellhead Gerber. I've been a big Hellhead nice. for for a long time. I love the Hellraiser series. Um, I I can't remember the first time I saw it, but I definitely watched this in order. And uh, unlike many of the Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street films, um, but I do remember being totally blown away that it. You know, hell, hell, you know, pinheads in like eight minutes of this movie because <laughs> uh, it was just not what I thought it was going to be at all. But um, yeah, I was a big fan. I think, you know, I'm sure I watched this heavily edited on USA up all night or something like that. Um, 
but I, I I I sought out the other films and was pleasantly surprised by the first six. And uh, <laughs> we're not going to be talking about the rest of this franchise, but uh, there there are some good there's some good eggs in there and there's some bad eggs. And gladly they pretty much go in order. So, uh, but but we're going to be talking about the first installment, and uh, let's start talking about that. Oh, you know what? If you were a Cenobite, <laughs> let's get back to that. Oh, right. Mel, Sorry. if you were a Cenobite, what would, your tra- what would you be? What, what would become you? <laughs> well, I feel like it has to be tied to what would make me sort of suffer the most, right? Or like, I don't know, some sort of sublime wound <laughs> that, that became both my pleasure and pain. Um, we already have the chatterer, but I do feel like my dental phobia is so great that it would it would be something to do with my mouth and um but i'm not sure what that would be maybe just like making my entire lower half of my head like open like a jaw that sounds pretty cool and uh i would love to have some of the religious ornamentations like some kind of weird subverted halo or um saintly markings i love that shit and and like a cool robe i love all the like how it's like weirdly sexual too so i would love like i don't know just just markings going on down like outlining where my organs are and shit i'm spitballing what do you guys think no no i think all that's great i think you put more thought into what makes a cenobite than a lot of people (laughs) because you know, in part three, just because someone's holding a video camera, they become a video camera cinebite, you know? So, like, it uh, loses, Identity. slightly loses its way. But I, I like your take. I think that's exactly, I think that's more what it would be is, it, you know, you kind of become your vice or something like that, you know? And then it, it's, it's flipped on you. Uh, Dan, what would you be? So, I've actually, I would also have an oral one, which is interesting that we're kind of meeting there. Um, I think what it would be like one of the chains is a fishing rod on my head and in front of me would be dangling a chapstick that is just out of reach <laughs> and I would be cursed with a dry mouth for the rest of my life. I've been doing hitting chapstick pretty hard since high school and can't really be calm unless there's one within reach of me. So I think that would be my sort of punishment. And this Cenobite features on ABC Family's version of the <laughs> coming out. Yeah, year. it's a little softer. <laughs> oh, but damnation I, nonetheless. I have, I think I'd, I would be, hmm, I think I would be just completely contained in some kind of, you know, latex. Gimp suit. Th- yeah. Because yeah, I think I, I have like a, a a bit of claustrophobia. I mean, I, I'm, I'm blowing that out of proportion. I don't really think I do have a, have an intense fear of it, but I feel like that is something that would be flipped on me. And then, uh, so I would just be, kind of be like condensed or you know, like vacuum sealed. It'd be sick if you only had like one eye visible. Yeah, like one eye vacuum sealed. And then, but I, I like I like the bits of, uh, you know, lead Cenobite and the female Cenobites, you know, like the way that they've got like their flesh pulled back in certain parts, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. So maybe mm-hmm, I'm missing mm-hmm. out. And then I also thought, you know, one of my major fears is a tornado. So maybe, uh, maybe I would just be flying around the room constantly. <laughs> you can never really get a good look. The other ones would be like, oh my like. God, we oh, have it's to the tornado him him again. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. You're the only kid who ran out of Twister out of the theater <laughs> screaming into Hellraiser. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 
I'm going to change my answer slightly because I'm so scared of surgery. I would also want like surgical implements like sticking out of me like something had disrupted the procedure and I had like walked off the table. Ooh, Ooh that sort of happens in part two, actually. Oh, shit. I, I, you know, full yeah. disclosure, yeah. I've only seen the first Hellraiser. Oh, hey, you know what? That's okay, because that's, that's really all we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we still have eternity to know your soul, so it's fine. I think, <laughs> I think it would be wonderful if some of our brilliant fans, maybe Zoe herself, uh, will take, take, take it upon themselves to draw these Cenobite versions of us. <laughs> uh, I'll probably be doing that in my free time. But because uh, we're already doing this in our free time, let's get back to Hellraiser, and uh, <laughs> let's uh, head down to the basement of Horlicks University. <laughs> can't see a friggin' thing. Uh, where'd I leave my flashlight? You remember, Doc? Um, never mind. Let's think this last name out of here. So for those of you who haven't listened to a Crate episode, the Horlicks University basement is where we're going to be talking about the background of this film. And and uh, Dan, why don't you, do you want to talk, talk about a little bit about the background of this? Do you know anything about this movie? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, so obviously this comes from the brilliant mind of Clive Barker. Um, he, it was actually originally in a horror novella called The Hellbound Heart, mm-hmm. which was published in November of 1986. It's part of a, the Night Visions anthology series. And uh, I think that they wrote it knowing that it was going to become a movie because the turnaround was pretty quick, seeing as the film came out in 1987. Right. Um, yeah, they, they, I believe... Yeah, they were, they were definitely kind of... I feel like they kept talking about co-writing it, you know, during, not co-writing it, but writing it during the the process of uh, beginning to develop the film. Uh, Absolutely. So he, he, the actual movie was directed by Clive Barker. You know, he wrote it, obviously the source material, and he wrote the uh, script, the screenplay. Yeah, and this Um, wasn't his first. We actually, we... No. Right, I mean, he had done... uh, No, yeah, so uh, he had done... uh, Oh God! What was that other film that you did right before this? Uh, I'm blanking. If you look it up, uh, he, he well, basically I know wrote that he was really disappointed plays. in other adaptations of his work. Like he hated yes. what someone did with Rawhead Rex and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. one other film, and he wanted to complete control over his own material to make it into a movie. Yeah, he just felt like if you're gonna get this thing done, you got to do it yourself. Unless it's uh, otherwise, it's just gonna be totally torn apart. And I totally agree with that, you know. And I, not that I've worked in film a lot, but having come from a theater background, uh, yeah, if you want to do something, you got to direct it. You've got to kind of be the end all, be all. If you don't want someone to be cutting apart your script, uh, but so the I, problem with that, Mac. <laughs> Is that you have no money, right? Like that's true, and that's why they wanted to do this into. film on the cheap. I think they had Christopher Fig was a producer, and they wanted initially they kind of sold it as like we're gonna do uh, this in a house with three people. <laughs> I mean, it essentially, is that? I mean, it's very it is very kind of contained <laughs> to the house for the most part. I, I believe half of the filming was done and they kind of started previewing some of it to uh, the producers and they were like, oh, we can throw some more money at this because they they liked what they saw. And then there were sequences like the creation sequence where Frank kind of puts himself back together in the attic. Like that was added after the fact. Uh, Things that that you thought, yeah. They also like said that because they thought it was going to have more appeal than they initially thought it couldn't be set 
in the UK anymore. And so that's why they had to like redub people, <laughs> yeah, right? That was, like, that was my next question was, is there ever a point in this film where either of you thought this was shot in America? <laughs> I mean, no, the redubbing is crazy. I, I'm a big fan of, yeah, no, I'm a big fan of European horror. There's just like a different feel. Um, you know, I feel like I could watch them on mute and tell if a film is made in Europe, especially if it's a horror movie. And this one definitely captures that. And I guess the UK is a little bit of an outlier. It's not technically Europe for all means and purposes, but it does not feel American, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, I, we, I watched it with a friend who had never seen it and we spent a lot of time being like, where are we <laughs> in space and time? I think we settled on New England because we were like, well, the ocean's there, and but it's like grimier than the West Coast. So I don't know. I mean, that, that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. And, but I, I think too, Clive Barker, and he, I, I really do think he's a great artist. Um, you know, he does video games. He's a painter. He's a great writer. I think he just has these incredible visions. And I can only imagine that the producers, when they were meeting with him and maybe seeing some of the dailies, they must have been like, "This guy's onto something." Yeah, mm-hmm. just just that opening scene alone, where you have the mysterious, you have the mysterious setting, the mysterious Frank, mysterious man giving him the mysterious box. And then you cut right to like him going into hell and you have like these like little brief glimpses of the Cenobites and then essentially tearing him apart and torturing him and then just the pieces of his face on the, you know what I mean? On the ground. And then, and I think he talked about in the commentary about how he want, he really loved those openings in horror films that were like Jaws and Scanners that just kind of fucking grabbed you and was like, let's go. And I really love that because I always forget that's how the movie opens because so much of it, you know, so much of the next hour is just like kind of like a a melodrama, you know, uh, (laughs) just at the house. But I really think that that kind of, that really is like, oh, we're, what what are we in for here kind of thing, you know? And I really love that. And so, yeah, if if anybody saw the first, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of this film, you, I bet they were like, oh, yeah, we've got a, this guy's got a vision, you know? <laughs> yeah, and we actually, I might have seen it with you, Mac, at the music box where Clive Barker spoke. Yeah. This would be back in 2008. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember it was you, me, Caffrey, Rothman was there. And it was nice because he's in the audience and he just seems like a really genuine guy. And he came out after, and when he spoke, he said, you know, I made this movie so long ago on such a small budget. And the fact that you guys were jumping and screaming, he's like, I was literally sitting there crying. I'm just oh, so happy that this Clive. movie has endured. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and he has that deep, like Harvey Firestein voice. Yeah, his voice but he was is crying all but on stage, now. and it was just, yeah. And but I really like, I just felt like real connection with him, and I thought that was so cool. It was. Um, he was wearing like acid wash jeans, I remember. But other than that, it was great. <laughs> it but was. He, yeah. So they made it on what, like a million? Wasn't it like a million dollars? If that, yeah, it was like nothing. It was really low budget. I mean, it's, it's I incredible. never realized that watching it. Um, and then even in the commentary, Clive was talking about hand painting the the electric effects of the box at the end, you know, when, when, when Kirstie's uh, capturing right. each of them again. Like they did that like cell by cell, like old school. And you, I mean, that's what it looks like. But like he said, he, he did that with uh, another guy. <laughs> like I was like, oh, wow. They, they were really like, Cutting, cutting as many corners as they could to make this flick. They also talk about the uh, the corridor that she runs down that seems endless was actually only like nine feet long or something. And yeah. they kept having to 
force her to look like she was running fast when actually they just they didn't have a lot of time to to shoot her running down this very small corridor but it yeah. worked like it, it really works it looks it fine does, yeah yeah and so I, cool. I think a lot of credit is given to robin vigeon who, who's the cinematographer and and who worked on like the fly too and then nightbreed uh shortly after this and i just feel like the way the way it's lit is great they know you know like robin knows no knew how to get the most out of the the little they had and i think that even like yeah that hall sequence i think you could tell in the very back there's you know there's obviously like a matte painting or something there to make it look longer than it is but but the way they shoot it makes it totally work i thought and again this comes back to my whole thing with you know there's a lot of there were a lot of issues with the mpaa on this movie in terms of the violence but I always feel like when you're censored or when you're only given a specific budget to make something, you've got to get creative. And you have someone like Clive Barker, who's insanely creative and intelligent. And then Bob Keane on special effects. And, you know, these these forces kind of came together and had to think outside of the box, pun intended. <laughs> and like yeah, and it, made something really, really special, I thought. Yeah, and having to work within those parameters because often people tend to be more creative or reactive. And I just think Clive Barker is an artist that can exist in both of those worlds and still give a great product, great art. Yeah. And of course, the things that they did end up cutting were sex, right? Like he said, there were, there used to be a little bit more graphic sexual interactions between Frank and Julia yeah. and that he had to take out. <laughs> yeah, he joked on the, on the commentary about how they were, they were, the MPA came back to them and, and they said that they were allowed to have two more buttock thrusts by Frank in that sex scene with Julia. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was just like that specific, you know, and this is, you know, this is 87. So they're cutting everything left and right in the, at this but time. Also, especially when it's female pleasure, I think it's been discussed on the podcast before, but the MPA was really into if a female was enjoying sex in a movie that was seen as a little too shocking and would get a higher rating. They're um, like, there's sex, and then there's sex. Then there's yeah, sex. but you know what I mean? But like, like Julia is embracing the sex, and she's, you know, in, you see her face, she's loving it, and it's this pleasure and pain mixed, and I think it just, people just could not handle that, and it's so crazy to look back on that. I mean, it still goes on, but... I do think... Know, what, what I do think this movie was ahead of its time. I don't think... I think it, you know, obviously it became very popular, but I think that's because people were kind of wanting to see something like this, a little bit more visceral, a little bit more sexy something that was kind of pushing the boundaries like may like i don't know like if you had the box would you push the push it to the limits kind of thing you know and uh I, so the mpaa you know for all, all they try i think they by by giving us less it just made us want more and obviously we definitely get that in the next one uh, maybe not sex but violence um <laughs> sex in the third one though oh yeah yeah uh we cannot move on without talking about Christopher Young's score in this film which i think's one of the best horror scores out there um some people think it's gaudy or over over just overdone or overused i i think it's great i love the box theme i love the main theme it it and there was something that said some, I was watching the Leviathan, which is, there was a documentary on this. That's like two hour documentary on the first film and then a two hour documentary on the second film. And sadly they don't have, you know, the rights to the footage of the film. So, I mean, 
well, the dialogue, I guess. They show some scenes, but they, they don't, you can't hear it. Um, but they were talking about uh, how the movie doesn't take, I mean, how the movie does take itself seriously. And I think a lot of horror films at the time were just like slasher flicks. And that's great. I mean, there's a play, time and place for everything. But I, I do feel like this movie really takes itself seriously. And it's very, I feel it's very smart and well done. And I, I think that the score reflects that hugely. And, and Christopher Young even said in the doc that his relationship with the film and Clive was able to pull this score out of him and for better or worse it's kind of defined his career and I, I think that's a great thing to define your career because I think it's a great score I think it all just aligns it actually reminds me of talking about Hannibal for a different Patreon episode recently and the aura of high camp or gothic camp that just suffuses the whole show and I think that's here too I mean if you look at the costumes and what the Cenobites actually look like it, it's very campy it's like incredibly over the top same with the music but because it is self-serious you are compelled to just kind of absorb the whole vibe at once and I mean there's just something campy about a guy who's just like fully flayed also like hitting on his, his like former girlfriend it's it's really leaning into that side of horror that would be ridiculous if it ever let up for a second but it doesn't yeah, yeah I, I think Hannibal's a good comparison because there's like a sophistication to the villain it's not a jump scare it's more just being in their presence that makes your skin crawl you know what I mean like you'll shiver but it doesn't have to attack you kind of like a mindless slasher it, it's it, it feels like you're the villain is someone who is way smarter than you could ever comprehend yeah. Totally. And then also just making literal art out of gore, which is like all this movie is concerned with. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, yeah, especially with the Hannibal thing there. Yeah, I think they both do that very, very well. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And uh, uh, speaking of the villains, I think it's time to move to our next section we like to call your Henrys, your Bullies, your Fluffies. I know you And this is a section where we're going to be talking about the cast. Uh, we've got our heroes of the day. Let's 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 start off with uh, Ashley Lawrence, Kirsty Cotton, who would later be later show up in Hellraiser Two. Warlock 3, The End of Innocence, 
and uh, <laughs> and maybe and I, I, no no spoilers necessarily, but maybe maybe another Hellraiser film if you stick with the Hellraiser series. Uh, I, I think she, it was funny. She said that she looked like the lead singer of Dokken in this movie, uh, which I wholeheartedly agree. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love, I love this character. I think she's great. I think they do her justice in the next film as well. But, uh, what, what do y'all think, Mel? Do you guys know if this comparison is really popular and I'm just like late to the game, but this Her look and the fact that this movie came out in 87, it just struck me as a completely topsy-turvy version of Labyrinth. Like, she looks like Jennifer Connelly's character who looks in Labyrinth, and the practical effects and the corridor and all this stuff, it just just reminded me of nothing else so much as that in, like, a way that it made it nightmarish. I like, (laughs) is that something that people say? I, I've, I, I can see it. I, I don't know if I've heard that, but that's a good observation because there is something almost of this. You're sort of she's moving on and kind of leaving her innocence behind, you know, like uh, she's getting hit on. It, it, she's having to kind of deal with this all on her own. I, I think that's a good comparison. I mean, even Maybe her this, outfits, which is just you yeah. know the 80s. But like, I, I love her. I, I want to kind of investigate this feeling that I have that Hellraiser is in some ways actually like a pretty feminist film or at least delves into like how how sex it it becomes the the primary way that women interact with the world and how that is awful and like um and how male pleasure begins to dominate how we get what we want or move ahead um and i think Kirsty has a lot of agency in this film. I I really love her. To me, she almost feels like the only real character amidst like all yeah. these other strange people. And I love that though. I love how she's just like you know the only voice of reason among all these adults that are just fucking everything up. You know, especially yeah. her father. Uh, yeah. No. And also, that's uh, funny. Clyde that, Barker. No. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, sir. No, I was going to say, because I remember listening to Loveline back in middle school, and he said that when he was young, and, you know, he's a homosexual man, but he dated older women when he was in his teens. And I think if you combine that exposure to older, you know, perhaps having a better understanding of writing female characters than a lot of, uh, you know, other 80s horror writers or directors had. Um, he, he was a constant guest on Loveline, too. And I just, I love hearing his voice. Again, it's got that very, like, <laughs> gravelly uh, but he, he always has interesting stories to tell, and he just seems like such a nice guy that you could just, you know, he could fit in in any situation. Well, you know, something funny about the Labyrinth parallel is he he's a big Dario Argento fan. Like that sequence with the sheet coming on the bed, the dream sequence where the sheet kind of like doused in blood and the feathers mm-hmm. are all over the place and stuff like that was very Argento, he said. And... um uh, Jennifer Connelly was in Phenomena, uh, and so maybe he's pulling a little where she can talk to bugs. Yeah, where she can talk to bugs, and I think that maybe there's a little connection there. Um, I really like that labyrinth pull, though. I've never heard that before, Mel. If you've seen that on the internet, you have to shoot me any other thoughts. But they, it's just so have, weird. But... They came out so close together. I thought yeah. that maybe it would just be a natural connection. But I love, I love Kirsty. I think that Ashley Lawrence does the best that she can with like the weird script that she's given um, and she really sells it. And she also gets a little opportunity for her own romance, which I, which I think like can be read as a sort of tossed off thing. But what I view it as is just like 
wow, let's get one glimmer of like what a healthy consensual relationship might look like amidst all of this like tumultuous hellish abuse and seduction. <laughs> yeah, and I know that like the Steve, the love interest played by Robert Hines, when we'll talk about him in two seconds, that he was kind of, he was not happy. Well, I, I guess we could just move to Steve right now because we're going to talk about it. He was not super happy with his character and it wasn't that he felt like, I just think he felt like he had nothing to do, but that was the point. You know, they purposely wrote that character, they said, as kind of like Kirstie's foil, like in terms of just, we want, they wanted Kirstie to be the stronger character, which is totally the way they think that it goes in the film. But if, sadly, <laughs> Steve doesn't do fucking anything in this movie. He show, even but, show, but shows up at so the important. end. That is so important. I know, but even, even when he shows up at the end, like she, she basically saves him, which I think is really cool. And I feel like nobody talks about that a whole lot. Because I feel like this franchise gets, I wouldn't say overlooked, but I think that because of the melodramatic aspects of the Frank-Julia relationship, I think this first film kind of gets glossed over sometimes when they talk about this franchise. I think they go right to two. But I think that there's so much to pull from this one. I, I feel like, you know, it, it, like you were saying, just, just with the, from the, the feminist outlook of it, period. I think yeah it, it just gets totally glossed over but uh what, but if you what, think what about it? every interaction that julia has the men almost all are shown to like pretty much get on the brink of rape with her and it's like very important i think that they show steve as a sort of passive like the scene where they kiss is is there's a lot of like lead up where they're kind of like flirting and pretty much like just asking each other like is this what you want and before they kiss and it's like a very sort of like chaste kiss even after all that yeah um Dan, but, but there's oh, just sorry. no threat of the same kind of <laughs> there's no threat of the same kind of like rape yeah but, and i think that ties into with julia too there's i mean the larger obviously there's a lot of snm influence in the costuming but also the uh, dichotomy between pain and pleasure and you know julia kind of making herself vulnerable but when in fact she's the one that's really controlling the situation and you know, she's the one that's going to dominate the men, ultimately. Yeah. Um, I just think it's great how that theme is kind of woven throughout the entire film and a little bit further into the series, but eventually it kind of drops off. It just becomes <laughs> just, a Just a little movie. bit, yeah. Uh, well, Julia, has, we should talk about Julia. She's really complicated because I agree that I, she, I like her. she does have, I mean, she does kill these men and, and does wield agency in that way, but she's doing it for, you know, her Skella boyfriend and... He he never kind of releases <laughs> control of her. She never really thinks for herself. She's always just wanting to fuck her Skella boyfriend. I love the Skella Yeah, but I think boyfriend. she is getting off on it, too. I think she does enjoy it to an extent. Um, and I think also the fact that they cast, you know, a woman that was in her late 30s as the villain yeah. in a movie. You know, you don't see that as often mm -hmm. back then. It would always be, you know, a younger uh, girl cast in that part. But, you know, Claire Higgins is, uh, you know... She's been around, been in a few movies. I think it was a great choice to put her in that position. Yeah, and, and her hair is is awful. <laughs> but, oh, it is. But it was it's the some 80s. things that are just time stamped, you know, and that is just one of the <laughs> the biggest ones. But I film. actually, I think I agree, Dan, in that maybe it was like her her consent in this is that like she does actively enjoy the the very like bdsm nature of their of their relationship yeah and there's because there's a lot of power shifting too with her and frank because in the beginning isn't he he's sort of like pleading with her and begging and i think she kind of eventually does submit to him but i think that goes to the larger 
kind of S&M themes in this movie, too. But. Yeah, also, totally. let's let's just note, like, I'm an avowed, admitted monster fucker, but, like, Frank is a little too gnarly even for me. Whoa, <laughs> like, really? He is, Whoa. He is just avowed covered in mucus fucker. always. Yeah. And the- <laughs> every time he has a transformation, you think it's going to get better, and it's like, oh, no, he's still just... He's still just slimy. Hey, if I was Julia, you know, I'd have to really be good at closing, keeping my eyes shut during those little flirtations with Frank. It's it's absolutely disgusting. Uh, yeah, Claire Claire Higgins, man, knocks it out of the park in this. She's so good and so evil, you know. And and but also, I I do like that power dynamic between the two of them. Like you're saying, Dan, I, I do think there's a total shift back and forth you know he desperately needs her to kill for him but then even in the end she's just kind of like he's gone but he's gone past it you know like she was in it for like the best sex and love of her life frank but frank's like kind of like been there done that he's gotten the box and he he needs her but doesn't need her for that he wants more even even after going to hell and suffering all this stuff he's not complacent you know and he, he ends up killing her um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I think that, uh, Claire Higgins is a great choice. Um, and I'd be remiss if I did not mention that she's also in Dr. Who as one of the sisterhood of Karn. <laughs> there you go. And she helps my favorite doctor, number eight, AKA Paul McGann regenerate into spoiler alert, another doctor. Uh, before we move on to our villains of the piece though, we gotta talk about Larry Cotton, AKA Andrew Robinson. Who is the killer from Dirty Harry? Have you guys both seen Dirty Harry? I have not. Oh man! Yes, uh, do yourself a favor. I, I don't remember him being in it though. It's been he so is the he's the serial killer. He's the killer in Dirty Harry, and he is awesome in that movie. He is so unhinged and bizarre, and just great performance. Just just off putting. Well, his I, I, flip in this is is great too. It, yeah, from, absolutely. From kind of like nebbishy husband to uh, <laughs> Frank wearing husband's skin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, uh, yeah, he's just the range is 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 incredible there, and and I guess he was also uh, pretty much like a probably one of the most. I guess he had the most film background at this point. Oh I mean, yeah, he like, was their term, he yeah. was their get. <laughs> right, right, and like I think that there was some trouble on the set just because you know when you have like an experienced actor on a set and you have a first-time director there's always going to be like butting heads but for the most part i think that they both really respected each other and and then in this doc in this doc that i'm watching right now he says great things about clive barker and he was really interested in his work and was really excited to be on it and it's just it's cool to see they've got everybody on this doc by the way um which I think you can watch. I think the first part's available on YouTube. It used to be available on Shutter. Now yeah, the second part's only available. Only part two is on Shutter. I did watch them when they came out. Yeah, um, and it was great. I, I just dedicated a Saturday to it. Yeah, and they've got everybody on there. But uh, but yeah, Andrew Robinson. Uh, if you like him, he's also in Child's Play three. <laughs> no, he's in a bunch of movies. Here's a question. But question yeah. for the the Hellheads is uh-huh. is it understood or not or like not a thing that he knows or suspects that his wife has slept with his brother like it seems like at the beginning when they're kind of like but maybe we can like make it work here that there's sort of an acknowledgement of a betrayal in the past but i'm not sure if it's as explicit as like he knows 
I don't know. I always took it as so. I took it as Julia kind of preying on a weak guy, or just you know, it's not like she faked it to marry him. I think that she's always been Julia, and anyone that would be with her would kind of understand that. So I think the fact that she was cheating on him, it's not like it's not the biggest surprise in the world for that relationship. That's kind of how I always took it. But, but maybe he doesn't know it was with Frank. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the part that's like she's enjoying that that's kind of what adds that extra titillation to her and gives her a little more power in that relationship the fact that he doesn't know and how damaging it is you know? yeah absolutely I, I don't know if he knew about frank but i i think that he's definitely aware that she's she's not happy <laughs> she might be seeing some other <laughs> not, gentleman nice. outside of the, the walls of the home um, but even he is not immune to to almost raping her like she really protests you know, when Frank is about to kill him and he's on top of her and it sounds like she's protesting the sex, like it takes him a while to stop. Yeah, but and he but just Mel, gets really mad. But Mel, he he says, you know, like she one minute you're all over me, the next <laughs> like that's an excuse. Uh <laughs> yeah, please yeah, make no, clear to our listeners that you're joking. <laughs> I no, I think that I think that all of these guys I mean, even down to like the the, the people moving the stuff in the place, you know, are practically like oh, yeah, of oogling They're Julia and oogling Kirsty. Uh, oh, which is funny. Uh, I I read that Oliver Parker is one of the movers. He was uh, he was initially up to be Pinhead. It was going to be between Doug Bradley and him, and they kind of debated it just because of the fact of the how long it would take to get into the makeup. Because right. I, I think well, they, that, drew, they drew straws. Doug Bradley says he, well, I don't know if they literally drew straws, but Doug Bradley says he drew the short straw. Like he yeah. didn't want to do it either. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, and, and if you go back and think about it, he's only in about the same as the mover probably. <laughs> he's like a, a little bit more maybe. <laughs> Eight minutes of the movie. You're practically covered and totally covered in makeup and all this stuff, you know? And and, and like Clyde Barker said, when 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 Pinhead walked on the set, he, he said he wished he could have been like, oh, this is like groundbreaking and amazing. But he was kind of like, this looks really silly. And you got to think on set, standing there with those Cenobites and the way that, that Robin lights that room just completely well lit. You got to think, oh, this kind of looks goofy, you know? <laughs> but it's one of those <laughs> weird things that, that that never lets up and all those elements come together. And uh, I think it just weirdly works. Um, Do you think the guy who ended up playing the mover is like pin- he's like hating himself over? <laughs> no, because Oliver Parker o- autograph. <laughs> Oliver Parker actually went on to become a director. I mean, he directed Lawrence Fishburne's Othello. He uh, oh. did an Ideal Husband. You mean, you mean Kenneth Branagh's Othello? <laughs> uh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, William Shakespeare's Othello. <laughs> uh, also, he was uh, uh, Peliquin in Nightbreed. Uh, if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Nightbreed, this is some other <laughs> Nightbreed connections in this, uh, as the actors were obviously fran- uh, friends of Clive's and uh, continued on in his next film. Um, let's talk about Frank. We've kind of skirted him a little bit. This is the character that I want to talk about the most because it's so interesting. You've got Sean. He's played by four different people essentially. <laughs> so you've got Sean Chapman as Human Frank. You've got. Uh, Andrew Robinson then playing Frank later on in the movie uh, with the Larry skin on. You've got Frank the monster who was who was uh, portrayed by Oliver Smith in the uh, in the skin outfit and everything. And then you had an unknown American actor doing the voice. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think it's interesting because you have four different actors portraying him. And I like the idea that Frank has been essentially torn apart at the beginning of this film and he's being pieced back together. So you have these four actors kind of using their performances to kind of piece this monster together. And I kind of think that really weirdly works because I know some people are put off by the dub, but but to me, the dubbing aspect just made it feel like an Argento film, you know? Uh as, and I and I also, really love that. Also, the voice is great. It's like deep yeah. and scary. <laughs> it is. I, I think Frank is so scary. I think that is one of the things that surprised me the most in this was coming into it. You know, you think it's just going to be Cenobites, especially from that first sequence in the very beginning of the movie where they show them, right, like right. right out the gate, they show the villains. But then the whole most of the movie is just Frank and Julia killing people, and. Yeah, I can't wait till we get to the scares because I think that Frank is just pretty terrifying. I think he's a great... Just to add another yeah, exponential layer, and in the second movie, Frank pretends to be a different character. Yeah, yeah. So we have four people coming together to represent a man who's then playing a different character later in the series. Just really good. Love Frank. And I know they they cast Oliver Smith partially because of he was the skinniest guy they could find because they yeah. needed him to like look natural in the... In mm. the skin suits. Um, speaking of skinny guys, I think it's time to uh, move to <laughs> to our Cenobites, and we've got one of the one of the smallest guys playing one of the biggest Cenobites, Butterball Simon Bamford. <laughs> uh, and we'll run through these characters because obviously they just kind of stand around in, <laughs> in this movie, at least. But uh, Simon Bamford, uh, I, it, it, what a delight on these documentaries, too. Um, he also played Onaka in Nightbreed and would show up again in Hellraiser 2. You know, it's funny that some of the actors that portrayed these Cenobites really, uh, really were only in Hellraiser 1 and 2. But I guess when you think about it, some of these Cenobites don't really pop up in the future films, which is very sad, but, uh, but for a couple. Um, what, did anybody have anything special to say about Butter? Well, who's, hey, I want to know. The toy. <laughs> I want to know who everyone's favorite Cenobite is of the oh. four. Oh, yeah. I, I've I've always been partial to Pinhead. I, I've been really into that character for so long, and I, I like I said, I had action figures of several of them, and I lost them when moving. But I mean, I had action figures from the fourth film also, so that's how deep into this mythology wow. I got. Hey, I love the fourth movie. Uh, Mel, who's your favorite Cenobite? Oh, I I think it's got to be the Chatterer. I just think. They're so scary, and like the moment where he. Well, I guess we're now put. We're going into scariest scenes, but I think with oh, everything right. that that the chatter does is is super effective, and the fact that they never talk. Um, and then second place, I think would go to the female Cenobite, who I love the like open vocal cords and the hissing yeah. voice. Love Pinhead, gotta love him, but I think him and Butterball, um, just don't do as much for me. Yeah, I, I like the chattering Cenobite when he would do when he sticks his fingers yes, in Kirstie's mouth. That always say. scared me. <laughs> and in, if you watch wrestling, Mankind, Mick Foley, his finishing move was the mandible claw, and it's sort of inspired because he uses the same fingers to put them in your mouth and like pinch your mouth as his finishing move. Ooh. Creepy stuff. Yeah, my favorite's definitely the Chatterer. Um, I, I just from the design alone and. I just like I like the idea that you've got you know these two Cenobites that are doing the talking, and then you've got these other that are just like beyond, <laughs> you know. And I love that sequence; it's really hilarious when um, the chat when they all show up at the end, 
uh, to confront Frank. And the chatter just kind of like pushes Frank into the room, the room more. Like you know, when he's in Larry's skin, he's just kind of like, get in there. <laughs> it like, cracks me up. <laughs> cracks me up. Love the chatter. Yeah, he seems like he's kind of the muscle. You know, he's like the enforcer. Yeah. Like, yeah, like grab yeah. him, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, well, I think- isn't the lore? I mean, you guys know more about the lore than I do. But I was under the impression, reading a little bit, that in in the original version of of these characters, like they're not from hell. They're they're from they just go to other dimensions and like are so twisted by their like weird torture pasts and they they've become yeah. these monsters. But they're not actually yeah. like from a religious hell. <laughs> No, it it eventually the series eventually just calls it hell. Right. But in the second movie, they really get more into the background of this realm that they exist in, and they worship Leviathan, who is this weird floating diamond. You don't know if he's in it, if he's it, it's so weird controlling yeah. it. It's it's. But I like it that it's almost incomprehensible. But obviously, kind of like that dragon one, at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's such and a we weird scene. and we uh, we talked about on Halloween. I think someone was we were talking about doing the Hellraiser series at one point, and. Uh, and I, I said something along the lines of it actually not being hell, and they, I got so much shit for it. But thank you for bringing that up because it's really not. I don't think it was originally supposed it's to not. be. It's just like you know, like and one I, person's hell is another person's heaven kind of thing. And I think they're just these. They've kind of just been dubbed demons because people didn't know how to explain it any other way. But they really just kind of from this weird dimension where pain is pleasure, you know. Well, my right. head, and my the, head canon is is it's the same place that the people in Event Horizon go. I I love <laughs> yeah, that movie, and that's a similar reason. And I always say, like, this reminds me the most of Hellraiser because it's it's not a Judeo Christian hell, right? Where there's no reason that would be truer than any of these. But there's parallels of like, okay, there's going to be a big boss in this place of suffering. Um, and can I jump into it's? It kind of hits a few categories. It is a little bit scariest. Um, but I remember watching this movie with my friend once. We were watching the World Cup, and we were stoned and sitting on beanbags. And my friend just started getting obsessed with the line where they're like, what are you? And the lead Cenobite pinhead says, we are explorers in the furthest regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. That yeah. idea that they're not even traditionally one way or the other, but they just, they're just seeking experience at like the furthest comprehensible level. And I was so stoned. I was just like, why did you say that to me right now? It's <laughs> freaking me out. You're like, fuck you. <laughs> that is, yeah. But that is what's scary about it. It reminds me of like Werner Herzog and Grizzly Man being like, you know, the neutrality of nature is what's scary. <laughs> like they don't, yeah. they just don't care. Like they're not evil, but they're going to do what they're going to do if you open that fucking box. Like, yeah. And, and our ideas that we would try to understand it wouldn't even work, you know, and it's. Well, that's what, like there's something we said, like the Lovecraft of like, oh, you can't comprehend it. But I actually think them saying that you're like, no, they're explaining to us why we can't comprehend it. And that's what's scary. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the the ambivalence of these characters is is really frightening. Like you can't reason with them because they're they're not there to be reasoned with. Like you open the box, we came. That's it. Done. Like you're now going to be tortured. But you and, can and all play stuff, by you know? their their logic, trade a life for yours and then i guess seal them back in the box when they renege on the deal well, yeah, well, you just gotta yeah, play say, by their yeah, rules they, they, they definitely renege on that deal that they, they make with her but uh but yeah i i think that is what makes them so scary and 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 uh, uh pinhead or credited as lead cenobite in this movie because i don't think they, they didn't have the nickname yet which is crazy to me how did they not have that nickname right when they first saw him you know but uh uh 
he is uh, played by Doug Bradley, and I just felt like I got to mention that he's in Hellraiser 1 through 8, and it's one of those roles. Uh, Justin says this all the time, uh, my brother Justin, and uh, that uh, <laughs> you can't replace Doug Bradley, and that's tough because I do feel like this is a character. This isn't necessarily like Freddy, but it, there's a cadence and a presence that Doug Bradley brings to the role over those eight films. And he, and some of these movies he's in like less than this movie, <laughs> but I just feel like it is pretty iconic and it's really hard to, to put someone else in that role. I think he does such a good job selling those like over the top lines and um, balancing this, this quartet. Uh, there's any other comments on these Cenobites before we move to our next category? Can I, can I make a comment on the Hellbound Heart? So mm. he's not really a pinhead in the book. Um, they don't really have a name for them, but they, it's funny. So in the book, they actually speak with like children's voices. They're higher pitched and it's they smell people. like vanilla. Yeah, but they smell like vanilla, and there's like a sense of rot underneath the vanilla, which I think is Yum. great. And they're they're really not in there a lot. I mean, even like the movie, you know, they yeah. sort of just show up as this force of nature, and they have this weird dignity to them that's just so creepy. I like. I think they call them the Hell Priest in the comics. Yes, but there's never like yeah. a pinhead. I I like that Clive says he wanted to project a sense of you know a lot of intellect onto the the lead Cenobite and that was like a new sort of thing for a really creepy villain character that usually they were just kind of dumb and lumbering and like going after you or like Freddie, they were, they were cracking jokes and just being like kind of punny. And this one was like, no nonsense. I'm very smart and I want one thing from you and it is your suffering was like kind of a new deal. Um, I also read in my, in my extensive wikipedia that the comic <laughs> series is, like, potentially pairing Kirsty and Pinhead romantically, and all I have to say is I would like to see it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you, you stan. <laughs> I have not heard that. That's very, very interesting, though. Well, and we had a, a fellow loser, Jen, admitted when we were planning this episode that she has a crush on Pinhead, so, no, like, we're not alone. <laughs> Hey, no. oh, I mean, I have a, I have a crush on Pinhead. I mean, I'm, what? I'm reading the bestiary comics right now. I don't have them all, but that is wetting my appetite. That pairing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I got Dan uh, uh, an issue or a trade or something of Hellraiser, and and he was kind of like, oh, this isn't really my thing, I, <laughs> which surprises me because he's so into Nightbreed. But uh, I think he ended, oh, Dan Caffrey, up, just I think to he ended up reading it and liking it. Um. <clears throat> okay, well, I'm sure we're going to keep talking about the Cenobites and the horror, horrific uh, uh, things they do as we continue. Uh, but right now, we're going to talk about the stuff we don't like in a section we call Shit for Brains. Same old Henry, afraid of your own shadow. You know what, Henry? You're a regular barnyard exhibit. Sheep's eyes, chicken guts, piggy friends... And shit for brains. Look, it's a film of its time, people. Uh, <laughs> it's very stuck in the 80s. If there's any, I, I would say if there's anything that I could say outright that I didn't like about it personally, especially after watching the rest of these, is the idea of like the derelict that becomes like the weird dragon thing at the end. 
because I didn't think you needed it. Like, I like the idea of that character being the man in the beginning who's kind of selling the box to people. And they bring that back in in a remake way, way down the line. Or not a remake, but a weird, awful version they kind of just threw out there to keep the rights. But uh, but I, I, I didn't, I don't like that concept. And I didn't like the dragon. I thought it was just like, what the fuck is this? You don't need it. Like, I feel like the, the Cenobites are enough, you know? What do you guys think? I think... Um that you have to watch this movie with context because if you don't, it's actually a bad movie. Like maybe unpopular opinion, but like, you know, if you go in with nothing other than I'm going to watch a horror movie today in 2020, it's not a good movie. Like the writing isn't great. The acting is whatever. The budget is clearly like uneven in places. The practical effects are sometimes great. Also uneven in other places. Um, but when you have the context and when you sort of like surrender to the experience, it's, it's like, like nothing else, especially of its time. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think because it kind of demands that of the watcher, it can be difficult. Like I felt kind of bad watching it with my friend who had never seen it because I was like, ah, yes, (laughs) like this was made in the eighties with $1 million. Um, and I agree about I agree about the derelict and and I think like I, the puzzle box opening and closing is like exoticizing and racist. Like, of course, they're going to put it in this like vaguely Eastern setting, and, like, yeah. give it to like this white man. Um, and yeah, I j- the the guy is like weird and and like cast as homeless and disgusting by virtue of that fact and then becomes a dragon and it doesn't make a lot of sense. I would actually be willing to forgive that were it not for like the other ass. Like I think it's in keeping with the weird nature of the film that like there would be this other force that protects the box and just turns into a weird dragon at the end. Yeah. Um but I I just yeah, do see- think it's it's so dreamy and you have to like let it be dreamy like or you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> Yeah, I, the ethereal nature of it, I think it all, the sum total somehow becomes better than the individual right, elements. Right, right. Um, and I think I, I really like low-budget cinema, so the fact that they could do this, like, I honestly would rather watch this than any of the Marvel movies. You know, when I see $300 million on a special effects budget, and I'm like, nobody could write an interesting story, whereas this, to me, is a very... Uh, I was raised Catholic, and the idea of hell is such a powerful concept of suffering forever. So, like, slasher movies never really bothered me, but this movie, for some reason, always gets under my skin, and it's just that concept of just being in, not just pain, but agony for eternity while these people devour your soul. It just was so terrifying. Yeah. Um, so I think it holds up pretty good for, you know, it, it definitely is of its time, and some of the effects are a little cheesy, but I'd rather see, you know, the hand-drawn or practical effects. Even the end, it, I, I don't think it should have ended with the demon you know whatever <laughs> no i think that's kind of cheesy but i do i do remember from leviathan though that it's interesting that the props guy had like what five hundred dollars so he went out and bought like a horse skeleton and a deer skeleton <laughs> and like shoved the hook he like put the horns through the hole he basically created a creature that doesn't exist um and when you look at how i mean for five hundred dollars to create that effect i think that's pretty cool yeah i um, mean they they used what they had to you know i and i agree with you both on the the front that uh um, you it, it's kind of hard to watch it now if you don't have the context or or go into it with some kind of knowing or 
like whenever I show, because this is one of my favorite flicks, and I think it's because I, when I watched this at a time at the time in my life, I was very, you know, I hadn't seen all this shit we've seen over the last you know twenty years. You know what I mean? So this wasn't <laughs> you were too far off, and uncorrupted. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't too far off from from you know the special effects of where I was at in like the early nineties, probably. You know, I mean, this is only like so many years after that. Uh, I think that. For me, um, it, it it's hard to watch this with people. Like I've tried to show this to people over the years, and I feel like it, it, there's a lot of setup that has to go into it. It's kind of like <laughs> having people watch the original King you Kong. Have a PowerPoint saying like this was amazing at the time, and and it was like groundbreaking and this and that and and they watch it and they're like oh yeah i guess i could see that but you have to watch it with the, through the lens of which and it, and with this movie not only do you have to watch it through the lens of i'm watching a, a late 80s horror film you have to also watch it through the lens of you know they had no money <laughs> you know, right like, right like but it's the idea I, asked, uh, I think that's attractive i asked justin i think over text in our group text like what so like what do you like like i want to know what other people like about this movie and he said, um, you know, it's bold, it's kinky, and it has, he likes the amateurish quality. It reminds me of, like, people who are, like, like amateur porn almost, where it's like, yeah, I mean, you, it's just more honest. It's just more raw. Like, it's just, like, there, that's actually raw. part of the appeal. Um, yeah, it feels, it's, it, it feels less scripted, and it feels like the people in it are actually experiencing it versus just going through it, you know. Yeah, and for this and amateur porn, <laughs> um, <laughs> this no, is but, our but plug for amateur like, pornography. Yeah, go out there and <laughs> make yourself a Stark. Um, no, but I think the context is important too. In that, like, I there's definitely movies where I'll recommend to people, and there's some that I won't. And this is like, you know, this is a personal movie for me. I know it's not going to go, you know, have the same impact because I watched it at a period of my life. You know, when I was like developing, but it's the same with like playlists. Like if I go to a party, there's a different playlist I'll put on for one group of people versus another. Even if I like all the songs involved, I understand that the audience may not. So I don't take it to, you know, different strokes, different folks kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I'd you be know that if you this. talk to someone who can appreciate the art of Hellraiser, you've got a, yeah, you've no, got a but, good friend. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. I remember. But, I... It's, but there's definitely, there's other things to connect on too. That's the thing is like, if you know, you can't put a square peg in a round hole and there's like a ton of films that I love that I know other people don't and vice versa. So yeah, I wouldn't recommend this for everyone. Um, but I do think seeing how it holds up, you know, almost 40 years later, it's, it's pretty incredible. And that's I, going back to Clive Barker crying. I think that's, it was cool to him to see that his art had endured across a different generation than the one he intended it for. Yeah, and and what's funny about that screening, Dan, is I, I brought my my girlfriend at the time to see it for her first time, and I remember asking her after the movie what she thought, and she was like, she she said she didn't she didn't love it, but she she totally she understood why people were so like enamored with it and. And then we, we got into like a really heavy discussion about the the film itself. And I think that if she hadn't seen it in that setting with those fans, with Clive Barker that would speak about it afterward, I just feel like she, you know, she wouldn't have liked it at all or there wouldn't have been any kind of, you know, the people can just like write this movie off in a heartbeat. You have to be open to it and you have to, you have to welcome its, its strangeness and its rawness into you 
if you want to get anything from it. And, and I think that it, it, it does. Take the rawness into you. I think it does deliver. Crash course of context. I think it does. You get that rawness in you. I think it does deliver uh, the goods. I, I got to um, say, one of our friends took a first date to see Cannibal Holocaust at the music box. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. There was not a second date. Honey, no. I know. As soon as everyone I tell that to, they're like, what? I was like, exactly. Everyone was like, what are you doing? I'm actually holding. So Dan and I both have uh, versions of the puzzle box uh, at our homesteads. The lament configuration. I, yeah, the lament configuration. And I'm holding it right now. Yeah, because when, we when we were Zooming at the beginning of quarantine, we had some friends, you know, doing a group chat. And me and Mac were exchanging the box oh, into yeah. our cameras to each other. <laughs> that's, how, that's how ridiculous we that are. I know, that's I know, the yeah. scary thing is I don't sleep with it in my room. I, so... At, before we move into the scariest moments, really quickly, because there's not really a section for this, I think this, if they did a Hellraiser movie that was kind of like, like like someone opens the box on a Zoom meeting, do you know what I mean? Like, that would be so cool. Or they did something <laughs> like the box, like, I always had this idea where someone finds the, like we like the opening of, the, like the trailer of the film is just going to like a building to like a, a building's daycare and amongst all these toys in this little daycare center room the box is there and that's just kind of like a teaser but like what if like a child opened up the box Mac, you know write just it. like i mean i know well, i really I, it for HBO? I really should um okay well before <laughs> i don't know if you guys have any ideas for a hellraiser movie just stew on that and maybe Call bring it, it up i mean i think hellraiser. the kid stuff is i i like the kinkiness i wouldn't want to lose that like i need yeah, i need there on, to be Mac. people that are sexually active <laughs> involved with the box but yeah, yeah um, that's very true I the guess. box could end but, up uh, anywhere yeah hellraiser yeah. colon only fans I think the problem with the series, and now since we're still talking about stuff we don't like, um, not to get too involved with the rest of the movies, is that I think they start mistaking it for like a bad softcore porn entry situation where it becomes, they, they, they take the sexual aspect of it and they kind of just make it a little bit more like about that. And I'm like, that doesn't interest. That doesn't well, interest I, I me. I guess as how much. so? Because the first movie is suffused with sex. It is like almost entirely about sex. So how? I but mean, it. But I, I not, already see it as. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like late night Showtime movie. But Hellraiser, it's it's just not done as it's not <laughs> well, done. It's just worse. Okay. Yeah, it's just worse. Yeah, it's the, just worse. Yeah. The third one has a lot more nudity because it's kind of like a dance club where there's like strippers. Um, but the fourth movie, and you know, I know, not a major spoiler, but you find a Cenobite that came from the 1700s, Angelique. Yeah. And yeah. she's this beautiful woman. And instead of pain, the hell dimension would use seduction as their means no, of no, torturing people. No, because they're supposed to be the same thing. That's what the sublime means. Okay, I get I know, it now. This um, is but, the no, whole... but it's great because Pinhead and her go back and forth. And he's like, oh, things have changed since you've been around. And it's, it's interesting. If you're looking for I... continuity, Mel... <laughs> <laughs> this franchise is all I, over the place. <laughs> it ends up on a spaceship. So it, 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 I go. mean, I sort of love that. But. Yeah, the first four, I feel like the first four are, you can watch, I think one, two, and four more so, but three, there are elements of three that obviously connect with two and four. So I think if you're watching it for continuity's sake, four is kind of it, but they do kind of always 
add or change a little bit of the lore every time, you know? So you kind of, you're kind of just open to, okay, well, this is this person's interpretation of it, whatever. But uh, there isn't just one end all be all. And I don't think there is for the box, but. um, I like continuity. And I guess, I guess to clarify too, I think when I say the movie is suffused with sex, it like definitely is, but it also is conflating sex and power and gore and like making them all the same thing, which is part of its appeal. And so I can see how if it devolves into like, just kind of titillating sex without that element yeah. of like part yeah. three. I love it, but it's just, it's just fun sex. It's not, there's not a lot of deeper meaning, but I, I, I just think Perhaps that it's a hard, scene. it's a hard, you know, line to walk with. If you have someone that really, really gifted, they can do that really well. But if you give it to someone that doesn't really know what they're doing, it can just really easily become kind of like, am I, why am I watching this? This is just kind of gross and just kind of like, total like d movie you know um okay enough with the stuff we don't like let's say because i do <laughs> actually like to let's get to our next category where we talk about the scariest moments called under the stairs it's easier if i just i'll show you i think come on down what's this so clive barker said that there weren't quote enough quote not enough boo scares or jump scares so they had to add some of those things in this movie and i don't think that those are the things that even though there's a pretty good jump scare with the 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 maggots corpse that kind of comes out of nowhere on on kirstie but i I do feel like is that just like one of the guys that's one of the guys yeah like she's been hiding that's the funny thing to me apparently she's been hiding the corpses of these guys in the in the empty room does not that place not smell like the like death? You know, well, like, no, because they've been they've been like it. no, they've been like desiccated. Mummies don't smell. I don't know, but all those maggots just rolling if they, if they around sucked, like, like the life essence out. Oh, that's true. There are maggots, so there's some rot. Yeah, that's yeah. a bad. You can tell they added it. To yeah, a piece exactly. Of <laughs> uh, but let's just go around in a circle and and uh, hit on some of our favorite scariest moments. Tri- uh, triangle. Who back. wants to kick it off? I'll Dan. say one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the whenever the bell tolls is very scary to me. Yeah. And there's a scene where you see the bricks and then the color switches to negative. So the black, I'm trying to think of it as a black turning to white or white turning to black. But through the creases, you know, where the mortar is on the bricks, smoke starts pouring in. And I just think that's such a cool shot. It's such a simple effect, but it's very scary. Um, the same with the chains. The you know, the fact that you don't really know where they're coming from, they just fly in, and obviously they were filmed in reverse, uh, or, you know, filmed and then played in reverse. I think the chains are a very scary element, and just the sound of, like, wet chains that's kind of always in the background when the Cenobites arrive. Yeah. You know, it's very simple, but it's very effective. No, I agree. I, I love how, like, when, when they show up, the logic of the room falls away, and it's almost like you're in a, a just a dark warehouse or something. You don't know where it ends, you know, and I, I love that. Uh, one, I think one of my most, something that's just scared me, I was just unsettling, so off-putting is that sequence when Julia is in the attic and like the weird half-formed baby Frank Ugh. just kind of hobbles really quickly after her. And I just, if, and I just had one of those moments where like I, I put myself in her shoes and I was just like, oh, if I saw that thing hobbling towards me, I'd probably just like freeze out of, and I'd die of fright or something because it's so weird. 
uh, that that stuck with me for years. That always really creeped me out. Um, I love the way that that Frank just kind of slowly comes back um, from the heartbeat underneath the floor, and and just his whole his whole thing is is really creepy to me. I think most of my scares are with Frank, you know. For sure, Frank is disgusting. <laughs> yeah, what about I you? I think. I guess to go with along with Dan's kind of like aesthetic, I the like rotating wood pillar that Ooh, like keeps yeah. being um it's like a wet slapping like rotating yeah. noise. <laughs> it reminds me of like a nine inch nails video. <laughs> like, oh, very much, very much. Um, it's like closer, and it's again, and it's like it's like so amateurish. Like it's just like yeah, they just filmed this thing like, but that almost makes it more real. Like you can actually kind of like get the full sensory brunt of it in your face and it's you know they did something horrible on that thing there's bits of flesh hanging from it like so yeah i, yeah, I think just the way they put together the impression of the hell warehouse that you mentioned is is so well done with so little um i think also frank's frank's deterioration into kind of like he he is now i mean he's not really a cenobite but he is someone whose pursuit of feeling has rendered him inhuman and and that also means that he um is like going after Kirsty in this incestuous way and i you know you can tell me if i'm misreading this but you know after he says come to daddy to her and she kind of goes for her wandering out on the street and is like remembering it it almost seemed like it was it was an older trauma like maybe frank had always been creepy to her or had maybe molested her before like yeah, he he, he just like has this vibe and i i found that so creepy <laughs> yeah I, I i think you nailed it yeah i definitely picked up on that too this time around as well just there's something has probably happened there before which is even more disturbing <laughs> i think anytime frank's on the screen i'm just like put off especially when he digs his fingers into the victims like in their throats and stuff like that is so disgusting <laughs> i mean I, there's some really really gross raw vi- visuals that just i think they do really well and you know hats off to <clears throat> to the special effects department on that front for bob keen uh they just did such a good job with that i think also i love that scene when frank is in the closet and he starts slowly walking towards them mm-hmm. while they're like, well, you know, Larry's trying to like get it on with Julia. I, I that is terrifying to me because just the idea of like there, he's right there, he's in the same room, and just like he just never knows at all. But he was there; he was so close to like killing him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he's just 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 his look in that scene where he's kind, he's at that point he's like kind of dressed, but he's still bleeding. And I just love how he's like, bleeding through his clothes. It's so weird. It's so creepy. Um, what about anybody when he's wearing else? the yeah. skin and he's got like you can just tell there's like sort of a seam up the back or like yeah, I don't know yeah. it's gross and like, I, I want to shout out head. yeah I want to shout out just kind of I mean watching it it reminded me of watching a little bit in the company of wolves which is an adaptation of like an Angela Carter story and Angela Carter was a writer of the screenplay and it just made me think about how you can tell when some movies are written by like literary writers and like yeah. there's a sort of 
dreaminess or just like a willingness to play with form that I think other movies don't have. And like in the dream sequence, in the bit with the, like when she is in that hospital with the video of the flowers, um, that, that is so weird that it, it seems almost crazy that that hospital room is real, but actually that's the real place that she gets back to after her like trip into the hell corridor. I just think that Clive Barker's sensibility as a writer of fiction of books is evident in the movie. And that is such an interesting collision for me. Yeah. That makes that's it scarier. A- that's why I'm saying it now in the scariest movies. Yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, you're definitely onto it. Like, uh, it's something about, you know, Hollywood trying to make a scary movie and trying to make it a little more literary versus bringing in someone who actually has that sort of mind and then having them try to adapt something that, you know, you would read that would be terrifying. But how do you capture that on, you know, film? Yeah. With I, a million dollars. With a yeah. million bucks. <laughs> but man, I mean, I think there's just some really memorable. Like, I know a lot of people don't love like the creature down the hall in the, in the hospital sequence. I think that's great. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. You can even, you you now you can see the people operating it. (laughs) It didn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. I just thought, wow, this is such a scary idea. What if this thing was chasing me down this hallway and the hallway seemed to never end? Like I was just more, I was more attuned to the idea that the film was trying to convey that I was so, I I was forgiving of the stuff that didn't work because I was, I just thought it was such a brilliant idea. Um, and you know, some people might say that's not enough to make a good movie, but I, 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 I think it just works on weird levels. Uh, any, any other scary moments that uh, that were losing? I mean, come on, the Jesus wept I, moment. I, I just, yeah, that that so Ugh. that's the shortest uh, line in the Bible is Jesus wept, and also and everyone I think knows it because of this <laughs> movie. Yeah, and that was, um, and I like the way he does it too, and like because it's. I'm trying to remember the context of it. It's Jesus being disappointed, but the way that he says it in this film, it's almost like I can endure this suffering, but Jesus can't. And that's just such a scary thought to a young Catholic boy. Yeah. And uh, I love that that line was ad-libbed by Andrew Robinson. (laughs) Yeah. Just threw it in there. And it's probably one of the most memorable lines from the movie. (laughs) I agree. It's very much like Blade Runner. Um, Yeah. What line was ad-libbed there? The whole like, oh the the, the very last uh, the speech <laughs> the, was there but the like, last line the the all these moments that we lost in time like tears and rain was added by Rucker at the reading ooh and I love in that and to to go on a tangent really quickly I love in, in the documentary for that Rucker Hauer says that he says you know um, or the, the 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 writer of it said and then after Rucker said the line that he had added he kind of looked at me like. Like I've been a naughty boy. <laughs> like maybe I, like I added something there, and oh, obviously can he be a wasn't naughty boy anytime he wants. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, no joke. But it was great because you know they kept it in, and then and that's like I mean that that speech is great, but that last line is is brilliant, and I, and I love that, and and I just love I love it when, especially here's someone who wanted so much control over this film because his last two movies the the script was just totally like obliterated and some only three or four of his lines made it into the movie that he was still willing to let someone ad lib like at a crucial moment of the of the film i i think that just goes to show that like clive barker's not he's willing to you know 
bring in things still if, if it makes the work better. Well, you know what, you know what the original I mean? line was. No, what was the original line? It was, it was like, it was literally just like, fuck you or like, go fuck yourself. Oh, fuck oh, off. Yeah, I think is what it would have been. <laughs> fuck I love off, that too. Yeah. That's one of my oh, favorite no, I think sayings. It was, he, goes, he goes, hey, pinhead, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, that, those are our scariest moments uh, when actors ad lib. <laughs> um, <laughs> And let's move on to a quick category called King's Dominion. Oh, you done it now, Jordy Farrell. You monkhead. Now, this is a, a category where we talk about whether there are any ties to King. And, and there's a, a couple, and they're not huge ties. Did you guys pick up on anything, any kind of ties to King in this? No, I thought we were going to say, there's none. Moving on. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's <laughs> practically none. Uh, the uh, docuseries opens up with a quote from King where he says, I've seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. So he was held in high regard after, I think he read Books of Blood. And also in the commentary, we know that um, uh, Mick Garris, who's done multiple King adaptations, uh, he had, I think it was Sleepwalkers. I think Clive's in Sleepwalkers in the beginning. I think there's a bunch of uh, reporters and photographers and policemen at the scene of a crime. And it's like all these like horror greats, all these directors and stuff. Um, that is it. I don't know. <laughs> other than the fact that they're, it's the horror genre, I don't, I don't know if there's any other ties to King. Dan, did you catch anything in there? No, I was going to say that quote because I do remember um, <laughs> seeing that. Um, I, I think it's just, he, you know, appreciates the whole interdimensional aspects of this horror. Um, you know, birds of a feather going to fly together. doesn't have to be a direct connection, but you can tell Steven was loving this. I will yeah. say that when Clive goes epic with his work, like I remember specifically reading the great and secret show and thinking this is very King like this reminds me of the enjoyment I get from reading a Stephen King epic. Um, especially yeah. like the Dark Tower. So, I mean, Mac, if you haven't read it, the Great and Secret Show, I think, would be right up your alley. Oh yeah, I'll totally, I'll write that down right now. Yeah, and I've also I've heard interviews too where people talk about Clive when he doesn't have like a set budget or an executive producer that he kind of like he'll make his universe tremendous, way beyond what the budget can handle. And I think if you look at some of King's works, there is that artistic hubris of just like, well, I'm just going to blow it up as big as possible, right? It'll work because no one's going to stop me. And I think they maybe have some similarities there. Maybe they work sometimes better with a little bit of constraint. Yeah. Hey, you know, they're both horror writers, so that, that's, a, that's a connection. <laughs> oh, there you go. Both um, born in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, yeah, tons of connections. Well, that was brief, and but you know we think I feel like we did our due diligence of that category, so we're going to move on here now to uh, uh, a fan favorite called the Creep Show. <laughs> we gotta stop! We gotta stop! Stupid people are dead already. We gotta do Christ, they die. Hey, Dex, Dex, hold it. <laughs> What happened? Two people are dead already. Now, this is where we get to have a little fun and uh, say some of our favorite quotes from the film or, you know, dive into a, a quick reenactment of a scene. Um, 
I feel like <laughs> we we have a scene here. Dan, you pulled up, right? Let's see if I've got here. Correct. And I think it's the scene where Kirsty first interacts with the Cenobites. And uh, how long is this? Oh, okay. It's <laughs> kind like, of long. Oh, it's just <laughs> like 10 pages long. Just, no, we've done longer, not, no, though. No, no, we've no. It's just longer. two pages. That's uh, two minutes. That's two minutes. Does anyone want to be, be Cenobite? <laughs> you want to be Cenobite? Please. I've always wanted to do this. <laughs> Um, does it, does it say if it's the female Cenobite talking? Oh, it yeah, does. It does. Okay. Yeah. I, um, yeah. look, listen, unless you want to be Kirsty Mel and not the female Cenobite, <laughs> I'll be Kirsty. Okay. You do it. All right. Does that work? Um, so this is where the cut to the scene. Kirsty's fiddling with the box, the lament configuration. It moves, and then... Where the hell did you... ring, <laughs> chains clatter. Jumping on, yeah. <laughs> Smoke rises. Go, sorry. And action. Where the hell did you come from? The box. You opened it. We came. It's just a puzzle box. <laughs> oh, no. It is a means to summon us. Who are you? Explorers in the furthest regions of experience. Demons to some, angels to others. It was a mistake. I didn't mean to open it. It was a mistake. You can go. Go to hell. We can't. Not alone. You solved the box. We came. Now you must come with us. Taste our pleasures, please. Go away. Leave me alone. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Wait. No time for argument. You did this before, right? Many, many times. To a man called Frank Cotton. Oh, yes. He escaped you. Nobody escapes us. He did. I've seen him. I've seen him. He's alive. (laughs) Suppose he had escaped us. What does that have to do with you? I can lead you to him. And you can, it's falling apart. And you can take him back instead of me. Perhaps we prefer you. Hey, I feel like we I should see. do our. <laughs> that was a good ending, Mel. I feel like, like really we should do our own uh, audio audio play of of this. I just I liked both of your versions. Uh, of I liked how Dan, there. you gave him a slight British accent. It really uh, was all over the which makes sense. Um, it's like you opened a freaking box. Now we're here, mate. <laughs> In it, oh, no tears, box, please. Then. It's a waste of good suffering. <laughs> Jason Statham open is that a box. pinhead. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, taste our pleasures, love. <laughs> what? A, all right, so, some of all right. We we we've, we've all got to do it. So, so that's my favorite quote. Um, I I want to let Mel start this off with with a quote that we talked about earlier that everyone's got to do let's hear it oh do you mean uh come to daddy yeah (laughs) come to daddy (laughs) so creepy oh so even now it's creepy Let's hear it's it, sort of ahead of its time, right? Like Hellraiser predicted the daddy craze, at least the more public daddy craze. Yeah, yeah. Again, ties back to S and um, um, Some other. Oh, wait, Dan, you guys, you guys say it. 
come to daddy. Now we're just going to get all the three of those on a loop. That. And then we're going to, that's going to be like an hour that <laughs> yeah, you can that's my on new YouTube. <laughs> um, we've already said Jesus wept. I love the, what's your pleasure, sir? Um, bookend of the flick and, um, any other lines that jump out to y'all? I mean, the, w- there's the classic, um, we'll tear your soul apart. That's a good one. Absolutely. Isn't that yeah. the tagline of the film? <laughs> yeah. Um, just yeah. brilliant. I also love... I like um, when Pinhead... Oh, go ahead. No, I love <laughs> that victim sees Frank and he's like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> oh Christ, help me. <laughs> it's so like overdone, but it's so believable. The like, I believe you it. you can fit into Jesus Christ <laughs> directly correlates with how scared you are. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Dan, what were you going to say? I like, I like the, uh, where he's like, this isn't for your eyes. You can just imagine what's going on when, you know, yeah. they drag him back to hell. Oh, yeah, they're uh, like, yeah. And then also, like, they're like, you're too young for this, sweetie. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. And then we have such sights to show you. Yeah, that's the other it just, one. It's, they're almost excited about what they're going to do forever to this person. That reminds me so much of where we're going. You don't need eyes to see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel like, I think that's probably why I like Event Horizon so much because I love the idea of Hellraiser and it's, it definitely skirts that. And I think that's why I, I liked that movie so much when it came out. Because it definitely feels like a, a, a sister to, to this film. Yeah, and the, the Lawrence Fishburne, I mean, spoilers if you haven't seen for the next 10 seconds. Um, but the idea that he sacrifices himself to save the rest of the crew, even though it knows he's going to suffer forever in this dimension, but they won't have to. And like, would you make that decision? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would just be like, Not even just kill a me. little bit. <laughs> I would have just killed myself. <laughs> just misery enjoys company. <laughs> Jeez, man, you didn't even think about it. <laughs> Eternal suffering. <laughs> like... Oh, boy. All right. Well, I think that that was fun. Uh, those are some great quotes. There are also some more great quotes in part two. Uh, if y'all want to... Uh, check that film out but uh, we're going to move on now to our overall thoughts you want to measure the bite marks henry <laughs> i guess he got his chance i totally guess he yes. did yes. i can't do anything for you unless you stop being so goddamn elliptical now just slow down tell me the whole story from the beginning can you do that so with the crate episodes it's not bright red Pennywise clown noses, but it's nails in the crate. Is it going to be one nail in the crate, or is it going to be five nails in the crate? And or, five is good. We want to we want to seal up the crate if if we think it's yes, good. Yes, yes. Okay. Seal it up mm. and ship it off to other people so they can enjoy the crate. Or uh, and, and it just happens to work with this nails in the head. Uh, so uh, <laughs> does anyone want to kick this off with their rating? It, it f- why, don't, why don't you oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say why don't you go mac oh. yeah mac you know what why don't you yeah, fucking I'll, go hey, why don't you stop tossing everyone's it to turning us. on me all right uh <laughs> hellraiser one of my favorite ideas and what i mean is that i like love the idea <laughs> of this franchise i'm always intrigued and excited about a new hellraiser film because i i, I always think maybe this time they'll get it right and looking back, <laughs> I think I think there is something to be said about the first like six films. And I know we're only talking about the first one, but particularly the first. I think Hellraiser 
in many ways to me was not what I expected. It left me wanting more. Um, surprised me with the the evil pair of lovers who in many ways scare me more than the Cenobites in this film. Uh, and I love the focus on pain and pleasure, the the whole where you know, one's paradise is another's hell. And um, I give this film uh, five nails in the crate. Uh, you know, again, I saw this at such a, a a time in my life when I was coming to love horror and it, it just delivered on every level. And I was so excited to delve into the rest of the series, which at the time, I think there were only four films. I think it was around the time four was probably coming out. Um, where you had like Pinhead in his MTV persona, like showing up at spring break and stuff like that. Yeah, but I uh, that. that was, I was like, oh, I can watch this because it's like on during the day on MTV. Uh, there are things uh, with the film that don't quite sit right with me, but uh, you know, again, it was 1987 and I, I, I forgive it because I was so intrigued by the idea um, that uh, it, it didn't matter. So yeah, five nails in the crate for me. What about you two? I I feel that this movie, <laughs> I feel that if I try to put nails in the crate, the crate will like warp into a hypercube and not be a shape that is perceptible to human eyes. <laughs> and like, it just doesn't feel like you can, you can rate it alongside other films because of the context of its creation. Yeah. So I, if I'm forced to do it, I'm going to give it 3.5 nails in the crate because I'm, because I'm being forced to like shape it into a solid that will exist in our dimension and, and judge it by the standards of other movies and like yeah, that's yeah. that's what it gets but just know that like the crate strains to defy traditional rating systems given that this was made on a shoestring budget by a person who got his start writing literary horror like it's just a weird dream that we all collectively had and how do you rate a dream <laughs> I love that rating. I think that's great. I think that's a great way of that's perfect for the <laughs> of trying to make sense of this film, Dan. I mean, I think it's pretty clear what I'm going to give it. Um, but this was definitely one of the first horror movies that I had seen that kind of leveled me up. Where I was like, "Wow, I didn't realize something could be this scary." Um, you know, seeing it in the context of a kid, and I'm not a person that's big on nostalgia, but I'm sure there's something in me that still turns into a little boy when I watch this movie. Um, I remember watching part four, um, I believe Bloodline. That was the first one I watched like as it came out. Yeah. I think it was maybe direct to video. No, I think um, it came out in theaters. I, I did it. I, I would never be allowed in that theater. I was too young, yeah. just a baby. Um, I, I think the, you said it, Mac, that it never fully answers your questions. It always leaves you wanting more. And I, a lot of other horror movies, they end up eventually explaining the entire mythology. And I still feel like there's mysteries to Pinhead, the Cenobites, Leviathan, the Puzzle Box, theologians of the Order of the Gash. There's just so much there. I think the creativity is amazing. The fact they pulled it in at a million dollars, I give it five nails in the box. Ooh, nice. We've got two fires and a 3.5 nails in the something. Uh, yeah, uh, really, really love Hellraiser, uh, love the series, would love to continue to talk about the series and, uh, that could happen if our Patreon, uh, turtles, uh, turtle heads out there suggest it. Um, but for now, I think this house has all but collapsed and we've sent each demon back to hell, save for Butterball, who simply gets buried in the rubble. 
I always felt bad. <laughs> I, I always felt bad for 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 butter. I always thought. <laughs> Wait, wait, he doesn't go back to hell. He just gets buried in the rubble. Like he's not with his friends. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, no. where's where's that side movie where Butter's trying to find his friends? I just like to call him Butter now. Uh, <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode and continue to check out the many episodes we have here on our Patreon and hope you look forward to our next episode where we'll be discussing the novel Rose Matter. But until then, Long days. Long days. Long days. And, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. Jesus, Jesus wept. wept. Ooh, that was good, Dan. It came out at the same time. <laughs> I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want some. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>